Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week on the show, we'll be looking at how tiny sea creatures could have big effects on our oceans. And we'll take a peek at the science of supernova explosions. Plus, we'll be hearing about some of the latest science books coming out this spring. This is The Nature Podcast for the 19th of April 2018. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Adam Levy. The mixing of water in the oceans can have huge impacts on processes like climate change. Now, if you imagine what might drive this ocean mixing, you might think of things like tides, temperatures or winds. But you probably wouldn't think of shrimp. What if the movements of animals in the oceans was impacting the movement of the ocean itself? It may seem unlikely, but John DeBerry from the University of Stanford in California is used to that kind of scepticism. I think the knee-jerk reaction is to uh, rely on your intuition, and your intuition says these animals are tiny and the ocean is enormous. And so how is it possible that such small things could have an effect? Undeterred, John and his team set out to see if swimming shrimp really could meddle in marine mixing. Reporter Noah Baker called him up to find out more and started by asking for a bit of background on how ocean waters mix. The conventional wisdom today is that the winds and the tides are the primary drivers of ocean mixing. So the wind blowing at the surface of the ocean and the tides pulling currents along the bottom will create eddies that eventually break and and lead to mixing throughout the ocean. And what kind of impacts are these things having in terms of what's where in the water column? Well, mixing is important for the health of the ocean, of course. It helps to bring nutrients to the organisms at the surface. Uh, It helps to oxygenate the ocean as well. Perhaps uh, more important for us on land is that the ocean is one of our largest sinks of carbon emissions. And so understanding these processes that govern the mixing in the ocean can be important for us as well. The role of animals is something that really hasn't been considered. 
but there are a lot of animals in the ocean and they're swimming about a lot, creating, I suppose, their own miniature little currents and eddies behind them. That's right. Even Walter Monk, who's a famous oceanographer, uh, in a paper about 50 years ago, briefly mentioned the idea of animals in the ocean affecting its motion in the same way that the winds and the tides are known to do. It turns out he was just joking, but uh, others, including our lab, have uh, pursued this idea over the years. We've for a long time been interested in what are called gelatinous zooplankton. So think jellyfish, organisms that don't have a hard body. And we showed about a decade ago that those individual organisms might be able to lead to a significant mixing. But the larger populations in the ocean are things like krill and copepods, think shrimp-like creatures that swim in huge masses, rising vertically over hundreds of meters in some cases every day. And so in this work, we wanted to better understand what role they might play in ocean mixing. And you tried to understand that using essentially laboratory experiments. That's correct. One of the challenges we have in the ocean is not knowing exactly where these organisms will appear. But perhaps more importantly, we really didn't know what the signature of their mixing would be. Uh, would it be a bunch of tiny eddies, a swirling currents the size of the individual animals, or might there be some interactions that lead to larger scale effects? And so rather than uh, trying to study this in the ocean, we started with more controlled experiments in the laboratory where we can bring more tools to bear on the problem. The other important step that we took was to use an organism that we could trick into undergoing these vertical migrations dozens of times in a day rather than once per day. And so we used brine shrimp, uh, the sea monkeys uh, that you might know from a pet store, which are what we call phototactic. They're very attracted to light. And so we could use a combination of lasers or even LED arrays in order to trick the animals into undergoing these vertical migrations in the laboratory. Okay, so there are these little brine shrimps swimming along and they're leaving tiny eddies in the water behind them. But brine shrimp don't live on their own. They live in big groups. And so what you are trying to work out is whether or not all those little eddies in a large group can add up to make a large eddy, a big effect. That's correct. And so you, you can imagine yourself as a parcel of water and one of these small organisms comes by you and as it's swimming up, it'll kick you backwards by a few centimeters. But what we found is that in these large aggregations, the next animal will come and kick you a bit further down and you'll start to pick up some speed in that downward direction. The next animal will come up and kick you again. And so it's almost like an upward stampede in the ocean is leading to this downward rush of water to depth. And the size of the swirling eddies that are created then become as large as the whole group itself, which can be tens of meters in the vertical direction, even though the individuals might only be a few millimeters in size. And so it's that collective effect that we identified in these lab experiments for the first time. And how big do you think that effect could get? You know, what kind of impact could it start to have? Well, Bill Dewar at Florida State is an oceanographer who's collected some estimates of how much power is associated with these vertical migrations. And he's found that that amount of power is on par with the power of the winds and the power of the tides, something on the order of a trillion watts. The question that had remained is whether all of that power just goes into churning water locally or whether you could get these larger eddy effects that we've seen here for the first time. So knowing that these animals exist in climatically important regions uh, like the Southern Ocean, knowing that the global reservoir of power is quite large, and now knowing that there's a mechanism that exists 
that can allow these small animals to create this larger scale mixing, uh, we have a lot of uh, pretty strong circumstantial evidence that this is important. And now the, the, the next step will be going into the ocean and seeing this uh, directly uh, by shipboard measurements, most likely. Up until now, models of ocean systems haven't included this organismal impact that you are discussing in this paper. Have they been getting it wrong? Have these models not been churning out uh, results which match with the kind of observations that we can take? The data at present, I don't think, is sufficient to rule out the possibility that we're missing an important feature in terms of animal effects. But I would also say that it's important that we get definitive field measurements to complement these laboratory studies before going to the the ocean modelers and telling them to, to do things differently than what they're doing right now. But the great thing about science is that we can take measurements and find out whether we're right or not. That was John DeBerry from the University of Stanford. You can read his paper over at nature.com slash nature, but that's not all. If you are dying to see the currents created by his synchronised shrimp swimmers, our YouTube channel has a video which should just about scratch that itch. I mean, if that doesn't scratch your itch for a synchronised shrimp, I'm not sure what will, to be honest with you. Um, Right then, listeners, uh, this week Nature has published its spring book selection, which contains a number of gripping science reads. To find out more about this season's offering, I spoke to Barb Kaiser, who is Nature's books and arts editor. I began by asking Barb what science books can offer that news stories can't. Science books are unique in that they're models of multidisciplinarity, and that is a really important thing because it shows the entire context of science, how it is lived, how it is enacted. And so you get all of the policy issues, you get the history, you get the social sciences that feed into it, you get the cultural impact, you get the human story of the scientists involved, and that really often adds up to an exciting package. There's a really wide selection of topics in this spring selection. Did you maybe have a theme or a thread in mind when you picked them? No, not when I put them together. When I'd chosen them, because they were you know, excellent science books, I realized that they did have some overarching theme, which was the thrill of the scientific chase. I mean, you could argue that that's true of every science book, but in these it's particularly obvious. There's a lot of dynamism in this selection. Well, Barb, you're going to give us a quick overview of a few of the books today. Which one should we go for first? Well, the first one I'd like to pick out is The Lost Boys by Gina Perry. Okay, then. Well, listeners, this one centres on Masafa Sharif and his social psychology experiments, and uh, the book explores conflict and cooperation. Barb, I must confess I hadn't heard of Sharif. What can you tell us about him? Sharif was a very interesting character in himself. He was caught between two cultures. He was uh, born in Turkey and spent a great deal of time in the United States, became a citizen. And his life was one of definite conflict and cooperation. Uh, Apparently, he was caught up in all the restlessness that was occurring post-war because huge populations of people were moving back and forth. So I think that it's not really very surprising that he chose to examine conflict. He chose to examine it through 11 and 12-year-old boys uh, in summer camps across the United States. The boys did not know that they were being observed or investigated, 
and the result was really quite extraordinary. Goodness. Well, what was he looking to understand? What Sharif was looking to find out was simply the dynamics of conflict and cooperation. In some of the experiments, he divided the boys into groups, and they befriended each other, inevitably. But then he redivided the groups so that they cut across the friendships. All of this was a way of studying how conflict emerges, how it is expressed, and it was very dramatic. Uh, The final results showed that these extremely polite, what you would call well-brought-up boys of the time, became extremely aggressive. But he also worked at re-knitting the groups uh, under various manipulations. Mm, And it seems like there are a lot of ethical issues to unpick there as well. But for any listeners interested in reading this book, what will they be getting a sense of? Is it the experiments? Is it the participants? Or or Sharif himself? It's about all three. It's as much a psychological portrait of Sharif as it is a portrait of those times and of these particular boys in these particular experiments. It's a really fascinating package. Well, let's move on to our next book, though, and uh, we're going to talk about Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honour by Brian Keating. Now, I think the title might have given us a bit of a hint, but what can you tell us about this one? Yes, this is a really intriguing two-pronged book. Uh, Keating is a cosmologist, and he worked on the well-known BICEP2 project. But I would say that the bulk of the book is, is really about the Nobel So it's a bit of a manifesto or, say, a call for reform of the biggest gong in physics. And what suggestions does he offer as to how the prize might be modified? Keating has some very unusual ideas for how the Nobel Prize in physics should be reformed. Possibly the most surprising is that he strongly believes that it should be awarded for serendipitous findings rather than findings that the team set out to seek. He also believed that the Nobel should go to entire teams, which obviously militates against the present system, which is just for three, a maximum. Finally, he he believed that it should be awarded posthumously. And of course, it currently isn't. So is the book then an expansion of these kind of three points or is, or is there kind of more to it and, and can you see the, uh, the benefits and, and the potential failures? Yeah, there's a great deal of expansion, but I believe that Keating is simply throwing these ideas out there. And I think that he has a realistic sense of how science itself works. And in fact, the reviewer of this piece, Ron Cohen, says that the US and European systems for allocating funding and tenure encourage cutthroat competition. So until those ingrained systems are modified, we may see no change in the Nobel. All right, then, Barb, but listen, let's go for one more. And why don't we choose Chasing Men on Fire, the story of the search for a pain gene? And that's by Stephen G. Waxman. What can you tell us about this one? So Waxman is one of the prime researchers in this area. And thus, this book is a a laying out of his part in the chase for this pain gene, as well as the work of other scientists that fed into this. The condition at the center of this book is called erythromyalgia, and uh, it's called man on fire syndrome, hence the title of the book. And what makes this book special is that it never loses sight of the fact that there are people at the end of medical and genetic research that are being affected by these conditions. But it very much puts you right at the center of that thrill of the chase again, playing out across many continents as Waxman and his distant colleagues uh, conducted this research. 
And how, and how is it set up then, Barb? Is this like a chronological uh, account or, or is this jumping about? How, how is it laid out? It is chronological and what makes the book really special and very suitable for both scientists, young scientists starting out in this field, as well as general public, is that 11 original research papers are actually woven into the text. It's I've never seen a popular science book like this. So you get that, and you also get extremely well-written context from Waxman, who is just wonderfully able to contextualize and describe the human stories behind this search, as well as of people who live with chronic pain. That was Barb Kaiser. You can find the reviews to all of the books over at nature.com slash news. And speaking of news, at the end of the show, we'll have the news chat, where we'll be hearing about a deadly tick-borne disease, plus a new satellite to keep track of a powerful greenhouse gas. Up next, though, is Ellie Mackay with this week's research highlights. We all know the early bird catches the worm, but does it ever share? Researchers in the US have identified a hormone in pinion jaybirds, which may play a role in sharing behaviour. Mesotocin is the avian form of oxytocin, the molecule linked to maternal behaviour and social bonding in mammals. The scientists found that jays given a dose of mesotocin were more likely to share mealworms with their neighbours, although only provided they had enough food themselves. So while the hormone might not encourage fully altruistic behaviour, it seems as though it may increase beneficial socialising among our feathered friends. If you'd like to share that story, you can find it in Biology Letters. An antibody-based injection can provide monkeys with long-lived protection against simian HIV, according to new research. The team involved modified two human HIV-binding antibodies to increase the molecule's lifespan, allowing them to remain in the monkey's bloodstream for up to four times longer than unmodified antibodies. Injections of these modified antibodies protected the monkeys from simian HIV infection for a median of 20 weeks. In the absence of an effective vaccine against human HIV, the researchers hope that these antibodies could form part of a regular prophylactic treatment to prevent infection. Read more on this research over at Nature Medicine. Everyone loves watching super slow motion videos, from dogs running along with their ears flapping to bullets smashing through vases. I'm even partial to a slow motion shot of someone getting hit in the face with a water balloon. Priceless. Well, this week reporter Shamini Bundell has been learning about slow motion models of a very different kind of explosion. Astronomers and physicists have been slow motion simulating exploding stars. From the iron in your blood to the silicon in your computer, the universe is filled with atoms that were made in stars. For the heavier elements, huge amounts of energy were needed to make them, specifically the energy released when some stars die. Stars live like humans. They don't live endless. They die, and uh, those massive stars at the time of their death create extremely spectacular explosions. This is Hans Thomas Janker. He's a physicist working on a decades-old astronomical mystery. Why do certain stars end their lives in dramatic supernova explosions? And there's a lot of physics involved in unravelling this mystery. Nuclear physics, uh, hydrodynamics, general relativity, elementary particle physics. One elementary particle that's thought to be very important is the neutrino a tiny particle which interacts with matter only very weakly, but could be vital for driving the supernova explosions. 
To test this and to understand the rest of the complex physics involved in a supernova, astrophysicists have turned to simulations. This is a serious computational challenge, as Thomas explained when I gave him a call. So, uh, Thomas, how hard is it to create a model supernova? So if we wanted to have the answer of how a star explodes and we had only a desktop computer available, we would have to calculate 8,000 years. So we have to go to massively parallel supercomputers and to get the answer for one star, whether it explodes, how it explodes, when it explodes, we still need to compute for at least half a year, sometimes even longer. So it's almost like you're watching a star explode in very, very slow motion. Exactly. Extreme slow motion. All the physics which leads to explosion takes one second, essentially. So for decades, when people have been trying to model supernova explosions, there just wasn't the computer power available to model it in a detailed manner. And you needed to be able to model the neutrino physics going on inside the star as well, which is thought to be an important part of, of why they explode. So these recent models must be a pretty big deal, even if they do take half a year to run. The big breakthrough, which uh, was possible a couple of years ago, some five years ago from now, was that we for the first time could do these simulations in three dimensions. And with the first generation of models that we started in that uh, of this new generation of three-dimensional models, we did not find explosions, um, at least not for the first models we tried. And that led to the conclusion that either we explore the wrong stars, that we don't look at the right conditions, or what may be also the problem is that uh, we are missing some crucial ingredients still in the modeling. So people were really expecting that now these new models um, would be able to reveal the, the inner workings there. And I guess the fact that they then didn't explode is sort of missing the key element of what makes a supernova a supernova. Absolutely. Not obtaining explosions, of course, was a big disappointment and uh, created some desperation. And people already thought that uh, maybe the neutrino-driven mechanism is not the, the right explanation at all. And it must be quite frustrating to have to wait so long between each experiment to see if the latest one is going to work. But uh, you and, uh, and other teams did manage to reach a point where your simulations did explode. Uh, you, you tweaked some of the neutrino physics and, and the model stars did go supernova. Does that mean that the physics is now accurate? You kind of sold it all and, and these simulations represent reality? Well, I think at the moment, I personally would be willing to only draw one conclusion from these simulations. Namely, that I think they support the idea of the ordinary supernova explosions, the majority of supernova explosions being driven by neutrino energy deposition. That is what we call the neutrino-driven explosion mechanism. Still, we have not been able to produce many explosions. There's a handful, or maybe let's say in, in total around the globe, so far roughly, let's say, a dozen of three-dimensional simulations with good or very good neutrino transport, which shows uh, explosions. So in order to really arrive at the point of saying the models are now converged, everybody agrees, we need more models and we need the comparisons of modeling efforts by different groups. And are there still things you can learn from astronomy and, and observations of actual supernovae in, in space? Of course we can. I mean, that is uh, the crucial test uh, for our models. Uh, we need to compare the model predictions to observations. And I know that a lot of astronomers are 
um, hoping to be able to observe uh, a supernova in our galaxy or one one that's close enough to get way more information on than, than we get from the many, many very distant supernovae that, that we observe. Um, what impact would that have on your models? Uh, so that is really, a, uh, I would say, a, a dream uh, for an astronomer and for an astrophysicist uh, such as myself working on supernovae. Uh, that we had a galactic supernova. I mean, in this case, of course, we would not only have one just in front of our door, uh, probably observable from the very first moment, we would also get signals which we have not had so far. Gravitational waves, because of these turbulent and mixing processes in the supernova core, gravitational wave emission will take place. And also, of course, we hope that we will get we are sure, we are confident uh, that we will get a neutrino signal which is measured with high precision, which comes directly from the core of the supernova. So direct evidence of what is going on in the supernova core when the explosion begins. That was Hans Thomas Janke of the Max Planck Institute of Physics in Garching talking to Sharmini Bundel. Over on nature.com forward slash news, we've got a feature all about this work. We've also got a short film which explains some of the physics inside the new model supernovae. It's a sight to behold, so to see it for yourself, head to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Now it's time for the news chat, and I'm joined in the studio by Richard Van Norden, features editor here at Nature. Hi, Richard. Hi, Ben. Well, let's head over to East Asia for our first story today then, and uh, it's one where healthcare professionals are getting ready for uh, the upcoming annual wave of a particular virus. Um, What can you tell us about this one? This is a tick-borne virus, and it causes a disease with a very long name, It's called severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome. It's just called SFTS for short. And thrombocytopenia syndrome is when you have very low levels of thrombocytes or platelets in your blood. So if you catch this, it's very nasty. You get a high fever. You have a very low platelet count that can cause bleeding and bruising. Um, You can have gastrointestinal problems. And quite worryingly, quite a large proportion of people who catch this virus actually die. It's lethal in uh, many cases. Hence why the kind of the healthcare folk are getting ready then. Yeah. So in March this year, Japan launched the very first clinical trial of a drug to try and treat this disease. There's no uh, way to treat it. And some researchers say that governments in East Asia should devote many more resources to raising awareness and studying the virus. What's causing concern is that the disease is rising in incidence and that signs that the virus can spread more easily than previously thought. So just to run through the numbers, it was first reported in China in 2009, where it killed 30% of those infected that year. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And in Japan and South Korea in 2013, more than a third of those infected in Japan died that year and nearly half of those in South Korea died that year. But that sounds a little bit more concerning than it really is because... Uh, As cases that we know about have gone up, the lethality appears to have gone down, which is probably just an effect of much wider surveillance, where we're recognising the mild cases as well as the more severe cases. So in China, only around 3% of people infected died in 2016. So your chances of surviving it appear to have, have gone up as we learn more about this virus. Well, only 3% there, and listeners, heavy air quotes there from me for only. Um, Who's at risk of this virus then? Well, just to be cautious, again, this virus is not expected to evolve into a a rapidly transmitted disease like Ebola. The real problem areas generally limited to people like farmers or hunters who come into contact with the animals that carry the tick that harbours the virus. Yeah, and I guess a lot of tick-borne diseases are what are known as zoonoses. I guess they come from an animal reservoir and sort of spill over into humans. Do we have any idea in this case what the reservoir for this particular tick-borne virus is? 
Well, goats, cattle, sheep and deer um, all expose humans to the ticks and they're often infected without showing any symptoms. But slightly worryingly, there were two reports from Japan last year where one woman was likely fatally infected through a cat bite and another report was that a man had been infected by his dog. That suggests that we have to add new warnings of the risk of touching sick domestic animals um, as well as animals that hunters and farmers might come into contact with. So why have the numbers gone up? Well, is it heightened awareness? Is it a growth in the number of ticks and the animals that carry them? Uh, or are humans encroaching on the areas where the disease is endemic? So it's, it's not entirely clear, but researchers say that they have lots of questions about how the virus spreads um, and why it's going up. And right now, we're in the period where warm weather is returning to East Asia and people are flocking outdoors where they come in contact with the ticks. So the season is just beginning for this year's edition of the virus. Mm, so a bit of watch this space then. Exactly. And Japan's clinical trial is with an influenza drug that was very effective against Ebola during the West Africa outbreak. And interestingly, Ebola and SFTS these viruses share a similar molecular structure. So there's hope that the drug will be effective. Uh, but as of now, there's no particular way of treating the virus beyond generalised treatment for fever uh, and recognise the condition early. Well, Richard, with a lot of emerging diseases, and it seems like this one fits into that particular envelope pretty well, um, climate change can be involved, you know, altering animal population distributions, things like that. For our next story, let's talk about a greenhouse gas very much involved in climate change, and that's methane, uh, and about a new satellite. Um, what are we looking at in particular? We're looking at potentially the first satellite from an environmental group. This is the Environmental Defence Fund, which wants to launch a satellite to track emissions of methane. It's been awarded tens of millions of dollars to start doing this, funded by something called the Audacious Project. It's an amazing name. It's a brilliant name. It's partly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, partly by the nonprofit group TED of TED Talks. So kind of exciting new way of funding a space mission run by an environmental group, not by a government. Um, and the idea here is that this satellite uh, planned to be called MethaneSat could launch as early as 2020. Right, so so methane sat there. I mean, they've given it the name to describe what it does, I suppose. It's a satellite looking at methane. Um, what in particular is it going to be looking at, though? The EDF wants to look at methane emissions from oil and gas facilities. It's already pointed out that methane leaking from the wellhead all the way to where oil is distributed, that amount of methane could be up to 50% higher than official estimates of how much of this gas is leaking. And that's a real problem because methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It traps heat much more effectively than carbon dioxide does. And according to some estimates, uh, it could be up to 9% of US greenhouse gas emissions in total. And at the moment, we don't actually know that much about where the methane is, is leaking from. The problem is that we do have a satellite in space measuring methane. Um, it's coming from a sensor aboard the European Space Agency's Sentinel spacecraft. Now, that looks at the Earth at a resolution of nearly 50 square kilometres. So that's not really enough to capture the individual leaks of methane from oil and gas fields. You can just see it mixing at this coarse resolution Commercial firms who actually produce the oil and gas, they've got their own sensors. They look in a very detailed fashion at individual oil wells, and they can be placed aboard very cheap 
sort of 10 centimeter sided CubeSats. Unfortunately, those data are A, proprietary to the company, and B, you can't easily scale up those individual measurements to the level of an entire oil and gas field. So what MethaneSat is doing is providing precise measurements at about one square kilometer resolution with global coverage at least once a week. And the idea is to plug that all in together to calculate cumulative leaks and emissions across larger areas. You say there maybe the oil companies like to keep hold of their own data. Um, will the data from this satellite be shared in a different way? Yeah, the EDF publishes uh, all its data, so it definitely intends to make everything public. One of the issues with this satellite, which sounds like a great idea, is its cost. And Yes, what's the magic number? So our story says the EDF declined to provide a cost estimate for its satellite because the design remains in flux. But it said it's likely to be in tens of millions of dollars. So it's needing extra support from philanthropists to operate the satellite once it's in orbit. So the EDF's chief scientist, Stephen Hamburg, he says we're going to be the first of this new model for funding these targeted space missions. But he thinks that um, as it becomes cheaper to launch satellites into space, we're going to see this approach be used by others as well. Thanks, Richard. For more on the latest science news, head over to nature.com news. That's it for this week's show. And listeners, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or if you prefer, you can drop us an email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.